Hi, welcome to everyone who's listening online today. My name is Ed Travers. I'm the teaching pastor here at LifePoint in Westerville. Grateful to have you listening in. Uh, you're coming into the end of a series called Labels, where we're looking at how, uh, through the book of Luke, Jesus interacted with those who were on the fringes of society, those who were rebellious, those who were irreligious, those who would be considered the least likely to come to God. And yet when God sent his own son in bodily form, he went towards those people. He drew them in. And that teaches us to live a life above labels. God wants to use us as, uh, as he works in and through our lives to connect with those who are on the fringes. Now, I bring it up. I, I was thinking about something with Tammy and I. Uh, this past summer, we celebrated our 25th anniversary. Uh, and we had taken a big trip down to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the week of Easter. So just prior to Easter Sunday, we took the girls down there and had a great vacation. So we spent most of our vacation budget there in April, but our 25th anniversary was coming up, so we did a series of small trips together uh, in the summer, and one of the trips we took was to Cleveland, Ohio. Now, you might say to yourself, you went to Cleveland, Ohio for your anniversary trip? Yes, because I love the Red Sox, and my wife knows how much I love the Red Sox, and so she got us tickets to see the Red Sox play up in Cleveland against the Guardians, so it was great. We had an amazing time, but while we were up in Cleveland, we did something I didn't expect. She found out that, you remember the, the movie A Christmas Story? Uh, that in, you know, movie that's always shown every, uh, you know, every December. Uh, little Ralphie, he's got the Red Rider BB gun, he's going to shoot his eye out. That movie, well, it was filmed at a house up in Cleveland. So whenever you see pictures of the movie or, you know, that part of the movie where it's in a house, it's at this particular house in Cleveland. And the next door neighbors, the bumpkuses with all the dogs, it's that actual house right next door. Well, somebody bought that house and turned it into a museum for, you know, the movie. The house next door is now a bed and breakfast. They, have, they bought some houses across the street, and they turned them into kind of like a, you know, kind of like a little uh, collector's thing. And so there's really like four houses that kind of are all together. And it's, it's like in, a, in the middle of Cleveland, just a street just off downtown. It's really kind of amazing. So Tammy wanted to go, and we went to visit. And sure enough, it was really fun. You know, the leg lamp was there, and the Red Rider BB gun, and, you know, it was, it was really fun. But I was thinking about the movie itself and why I think the movie has held such an appeal. It's a throwback to the 50s and how, you know, you look at the nostalgia of Christmas, the nostalgia of growing up. Uh, it, it's told through the older Ralphie talking through the young Ralphie's life uh, as the narrator. And it's, it's really fun. But I remember particularly one scene in the movie. You might remember it. Uh, you know, Ralphie is listening every day uh, on, uh, you know, his little radio program. That He's listening every day for clues to some major clue that's going to unlock the mystery uh, and maybe save the world. He sends in uh, to get his decoder ring, and it comes in the mail finally. And he's got all the clues. He's got his decoder ring, and, uh, decoder ring, and he just sits down, and he, he works it out and finds the message. And the message is, drink your Ovaltine. And he looks up and you can see his face, just complete disappointment. All this effort, thinking I'm going to solve the mystery. And it's a commercial. And he just throws the ring and that was the end of that. I, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the series. Because in this series, we see some different things happen. And today we're going to look at a moment of complete disappointment in the eyes of the disciples and a couple of the guys that uh, were disciples of Jesus. That um, I think it's interesting, like Ralphie, we all understand disappointment. There are things that we want out of life, things that we desire, things that we expect. Uh, and when they don't come through, we experience disappointment. Life has a way of disappointing you. The question then is, well, how does that affect us spiritually? Because I think if we're honest 
And it's, sometimes it's hard to be honest, but if we are honest and we look at life and we look at our relationship with God and we look at through the lens of faith, there are times when we're disappointed with God. We feel like he didn't come through for us. Why didn't he answer that prayer? Why did this thing happen? Why didn't this thing come through? And we think, God, why, why did you say no? Why did you let us down? And we feel that spiritual disappointment. So the question then is, well, how do we deal with that? What happens when your faith and disappointment clash? What, what goes on in us? How are we supposed to move through that? Well, that's what we're gonna look at today in this final message of the label series. We're gonna look at Luke chapter 24. Uh, and the first thing I wanna share with you is this, is that disappointment has a way of clouding our vision. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 24. We're gonna start in verse 13. I'm gonna read through uh, the context of this story is this. Jesus was crucified. Uh, they drug him into you know, the, the temple courts area and he, you know, he, was, he was beaten, he was whipped. Uh, they took him outside the city, they put him on a cross, they hung him until his, his body went lifeless. Uh, they put him in a tomb, they put all the spices on him, wrapped him with all of the things and, and made it you know, like, this is how you bury someone back in those days. And they put him in the tomb, they rolled a rock in front of him, they guarded the tomb because they didn't want the disciples to come steal the body and because Jesus had said that he would resurrect in three days. Well, now on the third day, uh, some of the women went to the tomb and they didn't see the, the body. They saw an angel and then they run back to the guys and they tell the rest of the disciples and Peter runs to the, you know, to the tomb and there's nobody there and he's, he's just beyond himself wondering what happened. And then this is what happens next. In verse 13 of chapter 24, it says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who, to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who went with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I mean, this story, this thing that happened really brings up a lot of questions. The first one is this. So these two guys are leaving and they're heading to Emmaus. That means they were probably one of the larger group of disciples that followed Jesus. They were believers. They believed in Jesus, but they're leaving and they're going home. And somehow Jesus goes to them, but he makes himself unrecognizable to them. So this is the crazy thing about the resurrection. Jesus came back in a resurrected body. He looked the same. He had flesh and bone. He had scars, uh, but he could make himself recognizable or not. He could make it so that he could walk through a wall. He could disappear. Uh, I mean, it doesn't exactly explain how he did these things, but somehow in his resurrected body, it was different. He goes to these two guys and they're having this conversation. They're downcast and Jesus doesn't even explain to them who he is. 
He just asks, hey, what's going on? What are you talking about? Who is this Jesus you're talking about? Like, what's, he asks questions, and they start revealing their heart to him. And I love that this verse really gives away some important part. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They didn't recognize Jesus. Why? I believe it's because they were so clouded by their disappointment. They were so downcast. They were so in the middle of grieving. And understandably so. They had you know, followed Jesus. They had pinned all their hopes on Jesus. But they didn't see. Why? I, I, I think that verse 21 really gives us a clue. Because they had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, way back in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies about how the Savior would come and redeem Israel and put Israel back to prominence, would rescue Israel from all of their enemies. Those prophecies are true, but they're further out. And in this moment, though, they were looking at Jesus and thinking he's going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom of Israel again. He's going to kick out Rome. You know, all the Roman soldiers are going to be heading back to Rome with their tail between their legs. And Israel is going to become the most prominent, powerful nation on earth again. That's what they were expecting. And they were hoping that Jesus would be the one to come and set everything straight. You know, he can heal. He can teach. He cares about people. I mean, everything that they want, this is their guy. And now he's dead. Their disappointment was clouding their vision about everything. This is the thing. I think the reason most people struggle to follow Jesus even today, not just to believe that he existed or to believe that he died on the cross, I think that is easier to believe if you take time to think about it. Like we recognize through scripture that that God has always wanted a relationship with mankind. That is true. We recognize that. But we also recognize sin. It doesn't, you can, you can be honest with yourself to recognize that there are things that we have done that have caused problems between us and God. We know that if we follow the things of the Bible, that we would probably not have made decisions that we've made in our life. And even though we know that, we keep making decisions that we regret. We keep making decisions we wish we weren't making. That's part of what sin nature does in us. And it's sin that separates us from God. That's easier to believe. That God would send his son down on a cross to pay the penalty for sin, to wipe out our sin, that is a little bit harder to believe because why would he do that? Why would he send his own son to pay our penalty? Because we're the ones who caused the problem. We're the ones who put our hand in God's face. But when you, when you recognize that and you believe that, here's what that means for us. That means we can be set free of sin. That means that we can be made right with God. And just by faith, we can receive that grace and mercy from God. That's great. Like we can believe that. But now that we're believers, here's the reality. It's in our best interest to trust in God. It's in our best interest to to surrender to him. And then we turn around and we put the same, our best interest on God. We have a life that we want. We have desires that we want for, for our lives. We have hopes and dreams for us, for the people that we love. And the reality is we have clashing agendas. My agenda is to be happy. My agenda is to experience life at its fullest. My, my agenda is that everyone around me, you know, would be happy and content. God has an agenda where he's trying to reconcile the whole world to himself through the son of God. That is God's agenda. And sometimes those agendas clash. Sometimes Jesus allows things in our life that are difficult and tough. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that when I said that everyone experiences disappointment, you have a reference point for that? Isn't it true there are things, I mean, hasn't everyone had someone in their life that they love have to pass on? Haven't there been times when you prayed, God, don't allow this person 
to get sick. Don't, don't allow this to end in death. And, and it did. Haven't we all experienced a breakup where we've been rejected? Have you ever been fired from a job? Have you ever been, uh, have a loved one who's dealing with addiction? Have you ever had, you know, marriages break up? Have you seen kids get sick? I mean, there are things that happen in life that are almost unbearable. And we wonder, God, why? Why? And yet God says up front through Romans 8 that, you know, he uses all these things, all of the rough things, all the difficult things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purposes. He has an agenda and he's trying to carry us through that agenda and he wants us to be on mission with him in his agenda. But it's difficult, isn't it? I think everyone needs a Miyagi moment in their life. You know, if you've, if you've been around a little bit and you've seen the movie, uh, uh, The Karate Kid, the first one, you remember there's Daniel LaRusso and Daniel LaRusso is this kid who moves from New Jersey to California. He's not fitting in well and there's some bullies that are bullying him and, and using karate on him and his skills aren't very good. He tries to fend for himself, but he's just getting, you know, beat up again and again. And, and one night he needs rescued by Mr. Miyagi. Uh, the guy who's the, the maintenance man at his apartment complex, uh, he comes in and rescues Daniel. And then Daniel says, will you teach me karate? And Miyagi finally relents and says, yes, I'll teach you karate so long as you do whatever I say. And Daniel's like, absolutely. If you're gonna teach me karate, I'll do whatever you say. And then, you know, immediately they go back to Miyagi's place and Daniel has to, you know, paint the fence. He's got to sand the floors. He's got to clean all the cars. And after all these days of extremely hard work, he's so frustrated and disappointed. Like, you're using me as slave labor. You're not teaching me karate. And then Miyagi comes to him, show me paint the fence, right? And show me sand the floor. Show, Show me wax on, wax off. Show me these things. Miyagi was teaching him muscle memory. He was teaching him. And there's that moment where he says, show me this. And he starts throwing punches at him. And, and you know, Daniel's able to defend himself because he was learning the muscle memory. And that's when he it hits him. Oh, Miyagi's been using this whole thing. He's been training. I didn't see it. Everyone needs a Miyagi moment in their life. We get disappointed because it's not going the way we want it to go or the way we see it. And we see it from a small vantage point. We only see it from our view. And there's a bigger picture going on here. We need to trust that God is working together all things for the good. The second thing, you know, even though our disappointment clouds that vision to see the bigger picture, we need to recognize that we need to interpret our experience in light of truth. What we're feeling, what we're experiencing, even in our disappointment, we need to interpret in light of truth. Here's what Jesus says to them. And he said to them, "'O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe "'all that the prophets have spoken.'" Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for, to them all the scriptures that, and things concerning himself. So here's Jesus. He's sitting there. They don't know it's Jesus. Remember that. These are two guys that are, that are on a road heading back home. They're disappointed. They're downcast. They're grieving. And Jesus shows up and says, you know, hey, why did you not realize that the Messiah had to suffer? And he starts all the way back in the book of Genesis and starts showing them all the way through the prophets how it all points to a savior that would suffer first, how it all points to Jesus. These aren't just random books collected together, history and poetry and prophecy. No, this is all one story that points to Christ. And so he started showing them. And I gotta be honest with you, if I could be at one Bible study in my entire life, it would have been in this one. I would wanna go back in time and listen to Jesus teach the word of God. And he's telling them, why didn't you believe the word? 
You don't need to see me resurrected. You should have believed in the word. And what does he say? I was just thinking of some things that that I know specifically uh, point to Jesus. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. It talks about uh, when sin entered the world and there was a curse. And he told Eve that there's going to be an enemy. The snake is going to try to kill the heel of the offspring of a woman. But this offspring of a woman is going to crush his head. That's all a foreshadowing to one day that the seed of a woman would come into the world, Jesus, and would crush the head of the snake, Satan. Abraham, Abraham had Isaac and God said, are you willing to to sacrifice Isaac, your only son, your one and only son who you love? And God didn't allow Abraham to do that. He provided a sacrifice. And that was all foreshadowing to one day God would allow his one and only son whom he loved to come and be sacrificed. We talked about the Passover last week that God sent the angel to pass over. They put the lamb's blood over the, the doorpost so that the angel would pass over they'd be protected, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the great Passover. What about the serpent in Numbers? The book of Numbers 22, I believe, where it talks about how, you know, the people of Israel were grumbling against God. They're out in the desert and they're grumbling against God and God allowed poisonous snakes to come into the camp. People were getting bitten by these poisonous snakes. Moses cries out and God tells him, take one of the snakes and put them up on a pole, lift up that staff, let him, and anyone who looks on that snake shall be healed. That was all a foreshadowing. What did Jesus say? He said that just as the serpent was lifted up, so shall the son of man be lifted up. Why? That when you look upon the cross and you recognize what he did for your sins, we could be healed from our sins. He could have talked about Isaiah chapter seven, the virgin birth. Remember all the way back to Genesis, the seed of a woman. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Literally talk about crucifixion before it was invented. Being pierced for our transgressions. His bones would be lifted out of joint. There would be people casting lots for his clothing. His beard would be plucked out. I mean, it's all a picture of how someone would come to suffer that by his wounds, we would be healed. Jesus could have went through all of these things. Instead of just showing them who he was, that he's resurrected, he's teaching them through the word of God about how the Messiah would have to come and suffer. This is the reality. What we experience is so powerful to us. When we experience loss, we experience uh, difficulty, when the diagnosis hits us, uh, when we have people that we love reject us, we struggle with our kids or we struggle with our classmates or with work or finances, we have things that just cause us such intense feelings and powerful emotions. But what is it that we experience should be interpreted in light of the truth, not the other way around? That just because we're experiencing difficulty doesn't mean that there's not purpose. Doesn't mean that God's not using that. And I think this is why it's so important because if if you stop taking in truth from the word of God, your mind is gonna be overtaken by what you feel. And what you feel is so powerful, it drowns out the truth. You know, early in this series, we try to encourage everyone to read through the book of Luke. Over the, you know, the month of May, 30 days, uh, we wanted you to read all the way through the book of Luke. And the reason we did that wasn't just to prepare our hearts to go through the series together. It was to develop the habit of taking in the truth on a daily basis. Do you know, if you read one chapter a day, you will go through the whole Bible in three years. If you obviously read three chapters a day, you'll go through the Bible in a year. It's not a race. It's about creating habits of taking truth in over and over again. That as the truth comes in and infiltrates your mind, it starts to renew your mind so that you're able to understand what God is doing in the bigger picture. It's that truth that helps you deal with the current circumstances of your life, whether good or bad. 
It helps you interpret what God is doing in your midst. As disappointment clouds our vision to see that, as those powerful feelings come upon us from these disappointments and struggles, we need the truth to help convey to us the bigger picture of what God is doing so we can see his hand in it. And this is the thing that when you look at the story, you recognize that Jesus is alive. He has been resurrected and the resurrection changes everything. It really does. Here's what happens next. Verse 28, it says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going further. But verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, but they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 of those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. I mean, this is a, an amazing moment. Remember, Jesus, for some reason, has kept himself concealed. He's showing them through scripture that scripture itself points to a Messiah that would suffer and rise again. That's God's word to us, his revelation to us. But then he goes in, they urge him, please stay with us. He goes in, he breaks the bread, just like he did on the night of the Passover. And their eyes are open. They, they realize there he is. How did that happen? And then all of a sudden he's gone, he vanishes. And what's the first thing they say? Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? God's revealed truth. That was more important than even seeing him for who he really was, that they saw the truth of God. So here he is, he's Jesus, he's resurrected. I mean, their, their disappointment turned from grief and you know, struggle and downcast to complete joy. They're overwhelmed. If Jesus is alive, you know what they did? They got up, this is at night, and they traveled seven miles back to the rest of the 11 disciples to tell him what had happened. And they're telling him, we saw him. In book of Mark, it says that they actually didn't believe these two. But you know what happens right after this? If you continue the story, Jesus finally appears with them. He shows up. I mean, this is an amazing moment. The resurrection means this, that even though the plan didn't go like they wanted, even though that he wasn't gonna kick out Rome at that moment, Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about us. It changes our lives completely. It changed the disciples. I thought of three different ways uh, that this changes. Number one, it changes fear. Every person has to deal with the fact that we're gonna one day die. And the enemy, Satan, has held that over our heads like a noose. That anywhere in our lives when we see death or we experience sickness, he, it's like he pulls on it like a, like a choker around our neck. Look, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. He just, he holds that and you should be afraid. But if, he, if Jesus rose from the grave and we have received his grace and mercy, that means that we will once be resurrected with him in eternity, that we will live forever. You know, Jesus said that eternal life is this, not, not just that you get to live forever. Eternal life is that you know the Father and the Son in whom he sent. That means we're in eternal relationship with God. We live. We will be with him. You don't have to be afraid of what happens when you die if you know Jesus, if you're in relationship with him. If the resurrection is true, that also changes grace. Grace, why? Because we recognize what God did. We recognize the cross. We recognize that this was all for a purpose. 
it wasn't just that the Romans grabbed him. It wasn't just that he was rejected by the the Jewish elites. It wasn't just that circumstance. This was all pre-planned. God planned to send his son. He planned it out. Why? Because this is the offering to us that his, his sacrifice paid for our sin. His righteousness is given to us through his grace and mercy. And you know what that means? That means when we receive the grace of God, we can give grace to other people. We can give grace to those around us who disappoint us. We can give grace to those who sin against us. We can give grace to those who, who aren't like us. They don't vote like us. They don't think like us. They don't act like us. They don't you know, respond the way that we do. And we look at them with the grace of God in us. As he pours grace into us, it spills out onto others. We can act completely differently in any scenario with the love of Jesus in our hearts and the grace of God. It means we don't have to control the world. If the resurrection is true, you and I do not have to be in control. And that's what we want, isn't it? Deep down, the reason we feel such disappointment is because we are out of control and we're asking for God to fix it. And then when he doesn't fix it the way that we choose, we feel out of control. But the truth is that he is in control the whole time. If he causes all things to work together for those who are called according to his purposes, If he's working all things together, that means that even though it's difficult, even though it is tough, God uses that for something bigger. We see that in the cross, right? All the disciples in that moment, his family, all of that means that God actually planned this out. But you know know what makes no sense? It makes no sense to me that when when Jesus rises from the dead, why would you go to these two guys? Why go there? I mean, he could have shown up to his mom and to his, his siblings first. Why not go to family first? That's what I would do. I would show my family, I'm with you, I love you. Why not go to the disciples, the guys who were with him the whole time, the guys who rejected him, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, who rejected him three times. Like, go to your guys first. Go to James and John, go to Andrew, go to Thomas, who was doubting. Go to these guys first. Why not go to Herod? Herod, do you think you're the king of the Jews? That's my job. Remember how you put me to death? I'm standing here. Why not go to Pilate? Why not go to these guys and show, why not go to Caesar, go straight to the leader of the world and show him, look, you had me killed. Look, I'm alive. But instead he goes to two guys who are walking away from Jerusalem who are downcast. They're leaving the movement. They're heading home. Why? Because it's over. Why does Jesus go to them? The only explanation you can have is that God loves them. God sent his son to them. We try so hard to be in control of our lives. We wanna make sure we can control the circumstances, control the environment for us and for our children and for our children's children. We wanna make sure the future is safe for them. We wanna make sure the education system and our political system and the financial systems are all set up to provide the future that we want to make sure we're protecting and in control of the future. And Jesus is saying, I'm I'm in control. Because there's nothing that looks more out of control than a savior of the world being killed on a cross. Nothing could be you know, the most out of control thing that they have ever seen. And yet God showed that he was in control the whole time. This wasn't random. So what do we do? You know, what happens when our faith and our disappointments clash? What does it look like for us? I, I, I wanna tell you the story of a, a couple that I know married couple. Uh, they both grew up in Christian homes and uh, both at you know, early times in their life had heard the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, that their sins could be forgiven. They could receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. They heard that message and they received that message into their life. They're believers. 
They go on in life, but, you know, their faith wasn't the central primary thing in their life. They had other things, other agendas they were really following. They ran into each other. They fell in love. They married each other and started having kids. And, uh, you know, he's now climbing the corporate ladder. He's, he's got, you know, everything uh, in his life is going in a direction. And he's just grabbing it by the gusto. Uh, but that also caused him to be a little bit distant, you know, at home because he's working so much. And the wife who, you know, she's got everything she's dreamed of. You know, she's got the, the perfect husband, the perfect kids, the perfect life. They go to church. And yet, deep down, it wasn't satisfactory to her. She's drinking and struggling and they're fighting at home. Their relationship is coming undone. Their faith is becoming secondary to all the things that are happening around them. There's a lot of just disappointment in their lives. And he then starts confiding in, a, in another person at work, another lady. And, you know, she understands him, right? Wife doesn't understand me. He starts, and, and if that had gone on, that would have been probably something extremely devastating and hard to come back from. But here's, here's what happened. Through the grace of God, it all came out. And in their brokenness, in their disappointment, they turned to the Lord. They just allowed the Lord to speak life into them. And that's where they discovered the grace of God in a way they had never seen. In that brokenness, as they turned to the Lord, his grace and mercy started to infiltrate their heart. They were able to grace each other. They were able to love each other. The disappointment, they were able to share that together and commit that to the Lord and allow him to speak into that. They would say to this day uh, that this was one of the most important things that ever happened in their faith because they know God more now. They understand the grace of God more now and it influences their life more now than they ever had before. They were so caught up in these things. And, and the guy was telling me that uh, basically, you know, you don't jump into like a, a vat of acid, like when you see it, the enemy is really slick. He just slowly coaxes you in. And the next thing you know, you're into something that's gonna destroy your life. And that's what the world was doing to this guy. And yet God's grace and mercy was sufficient to draw him out, to change their lives, to heal them both from the inside. And they, they understand now that even in the midst of the disappointment that God was in control. And as they received his grace and mercy, he's changing them. These two serve in their church. They're incredible parents. And they would say that their marriage is stronger than it's ever been because Christ is now at the centerpiece of, what of their faith, no matter the circumstance. So what does that say to you and I? That if you're in the midst of a really disappointing season of your life, I would say to you the same thing that they did in verse 29. Jesus telling them the word of God and they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. I would say the same thing to you is to urge Jesus to come close. Don't, don't hide from him. Don't run from the Lord, run to him. If you're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, that's your time to lean in more strongly towards the Lord. Allow his word of God to wash into your mind and heart. Allow his spirit to just guide your life. Submit your future and the control and your fears all to him and allow him to put his grace in your heart. I would just say that to you to encourage you to hang and cling tightly to the Lord. If you're listening and you've never received the grace and mercy of Christ, for you today, that's what you do. You simply pray to receive the grace and mercy. Allow your sin to be washed away. Allow that what Christ did on the cross to pay for your sin by receiving his grace and mercy in your life. That's a step of faith. If you're ready to do that, I'll lead you in a prayer to do that. Just kind of close your eyes and bow your head and talk to the Lord and say, God, I believe in you. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and I believe he rose from the grave. The Bible says, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's how you do that. You say, Jesus, I am sorry that I've sinned against you. 
I am sorry for the things that I've done. And I'm asking you, Jesus, will you please forgive me of my sin? I'm sorry. And then tell him, I want to turn towards you, Jesus, and I want you to lead my life. Will you help me to follow you? That small step from your heart to God, that step of faith is what makes you right with God because of what he did on the cross. And I would just say that if you're listening in and you're at a moment of despair and disappointment, talk to God and say, God, I'm handing this disappointment to you. I'm handing my future to you. I'm handing my fears to you. I want your grace in my life. Help me lean in close. I'm urging you, Jesus, to strongly stay with me and guide me through this step. Use it for your glory. Use it for something bigger that I don't see, but help me to cling to you through it all. Father, I pray for all of us that we would cling tightly to you, that you would walk us through the circumstances and help heal us from the inside out. God, teach us to live a life above labels, to be on mission with you in your agenda to reconcile the world to yourself. God, use our strengths, use our weaknesses, use our elations and use our disappointments. God, use our brokenness, bring it all together for something bigger that other people would know you in your glory. And we ask that in your son's name, amen, amen. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for being part of the label series. I would just say to you that if you're listening in and maybe it's the first time, I just would, would recommend go to lpguest.com. Uh, that, uh, that online page will take you there. There's a guest information button. If you hit the guest information button, fill out a little bit of information, uh, then let us know how you heard about LifePoint and that will uh, help us to get in contact with you and then we can send you uh, an email and you know, feel free to reach out to me if you wanna take a next step, you have a question about baptism or about uh, you know, what it would look like to get involved in the church, be happy to connect with you as best I can. Uh, my name is Ed Travers, that's edt at lifepointohio.com. Be happy to connect uh, and try to help get you steered into the right direction. And for all those who give, uh, regular uh, listeners and, and people who consider themselves members of our church, uh, thank you for the way that you give. Uh, you can go to our lifepointohio.com page and, and for giving. And if you want to give in some way, shape, or form to help support what we do here online and in all of our campuses, uh, you can go ahead and do that there. Well, thank you so much for listening in. Until next time, God bless.